turn to God's Word once again in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. You may want to keep your Bibles open and refer back to parts of chapter 8 that I'll be looking at, uh, we'll be looking at together, but we'll read uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. Hear God's holy word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they dis divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, at the end of the Old Testament period and the, the beginning of the New Testament period, the people of Israel must have been wondering, what is going on with God's promises? In particular, his promises uh, to David. God had made a promise to David about a new Davidic king a king in the line of David. But where was this king? In 2 Samuel 7, we see that promise. God said, David, I will raise up one of your descendants after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
and your throne shall be established forever. Now, parts of that promise had to do with David's physical son, Solomon, who came right after David. But there is so much more to that promise than things regarding Solomon. Solomon's reign ended with a real fizzle. It ended with the falling apart of Israel in division and in idolatry. It was a sad end to a a wonderful, glorious reign. Really the height of the reign of Israel's king under Solomon, but it ended so badly. But God's promise spoke of a Davidic king and kingdom, a kingdom that would never end. But by the time the New Testament period came about, there had not been a king in David's line for a long time, for some 500 years, more than 500 years. Not since the king of Babylon put an end to Judah and its kings in 586 B.C. Well, 70 years later, the exiles were able to return to the land. Just a handful of them, you recall, made that journey and returned. But the people began to be restored. And still, though, it was not much of a kingdom at all. It really wasn't a a kingdom uh, in the way uh, Israel had come to think of the kingdom. They were ruled by other kings, other rulers, the conquering powers of Babylon, and then Persia, and then Rome. And the only kings that were allowed were puppet kings of those foreign nations. And that was the state of things at the opening of the New Testament period. So what happened? They probably wondered, had God's promises failed? Had he given up on his people? Well, no. The fulfillment of God's promise was still to come, and it was about to come. But not in the way that the people expected. God said to Israel through Isaiah, he said to his people, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And through that message, we looked at last week, um, God delivered that message through Isaiah to King Ahaz and the people of Judah. Through that message, God was saying to them, I am going to keep my promises to David. Even though you're rejecting me, even though you refuse to trust in me, I'm going to keep my promises anyway. Even though you refuse to ask for a sign from me, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to do this all in a way that seems completely impossible. I will bring my king into the world, and he will reign over my kingdom forever. God always keeps his word. 
something we need to know about the God of the Bible. He is always faithful to the word that he has spoken. And in the fullness of time, he brought that king, the son of David, the son of God, into the world. Born of a virgin, literally, just as he said. And that was an incredibly amazing miracle, a stunning miracle that we love to, to think about at this time of year. But whenever you think about Jesus' birth, his miraculous virgin birth, and the miracle of who he is as God and man in one glorious person, remember, it wasn't just a great miracle. It was also God's faithfulness in action. God keeping his promises faithfully by giving his son the virgin-born king. Coming back to Isaiah 9 here, um, remember the situation. Remember the, the historical, political situation. We talked about it some last week. The northern kingdom uh, of Israel had been divided from the southern kingdom of Judah. And at that point, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was... Uh, really going downhill fast in their idolatry. Uh, they had no regard for the Lord and his word. Uh, they had al allied themselves with the neighboring nation of Syria. I turned off my phone so it won't respond to the Siri thing this week like it did last week. Yeah. Um, they, these two had teamed up, the northern kingdom and Syria against the greater superpower of that day, which was Assyria. And they wanted Judah now to join them in their coalition against this greater enemy. Assyria was dominating the world, conquering all their enemies. And that terrified these people. And it terrified Ahaz of Judah and the people of Judah that now these uh, the northern kingdom and Syria were coming against them, trying to force them into that coalition. Their faith in God was very shaken. It looks as if King Ahaz had no faith. Even when the Lord spoke through Isaiah to reassure Ahaz in such a kind and gracious way, Ahaz refused to trust in the Lord. He didn't fear God. He feared man. And again, he, he didn't even seem to believe in the Lord at all to, to uh, see the steps he takes here and the way he responds to the prophet. Uh, he doesn't seem to believe in the Lord at all, much less trust the Lord actively to protect him and Judah. So instead of calling on the Lord, he does what an unbeliever would do. Ahaz looks to man for help. He chose to call on the king of Assyria. So these two enemies are coming against me. I'll call on their enemy, and maybe we'll team up and defeat them. He calls on the king of Assyria to protect him from Israel and Syria. It was the fear of man that motivated him. He's just thinking on that human level 
what these enemies can do to me. People, the fear of man is a snare that we need to be very careful of. You and I are not to fear men. You are to fear God. You are to stand in awe of Him and Him only. That should be the posture of your heart, to be in awe, in reverence and fear of the Lord, to live that way, and to to love Him and to trust in Him as your faithful God. Look at Isaiah 8, uh, if you have your Bibles open. Look at verses 11 through 13. Isaiah said there, as he continued um, speaking to the king, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow in the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Ahaz and and the people of Judah had those, those feelings toward these enemies, these human enemies. They were scared to death of them. They dreaded them, but had little regard for the Lord. It seems they had no consciousness even of the Lord and his greatness and his holiness and his power and his faithfulness and his presence with them. They should have, but they didn't. They only had the enemy on their minds. Now, the enemy threat was real, but God was greater than any human enemy. So much greater. Compared to God, these enemies were nothing. And God says as much to them through uh, the prophet. He says, don't worry about them. They're nothing. They're like little smoldering firebrands. You don't have to concern yourself with them. Just trust in me. He's saying, in essence, if you fear them and forget me, you're completely getting it backwards. And that's exactly what we do. We get it utterly backwards when we fear man and we fear our circumstances, our troubles, our trials, whatever they may be. And we fear those things more than we fear the Lord. That is backwards thinking. Uh, We're standing in awe of uh, human problems and human enemies, created things that don't deserve our awe. That is faithless, backward, godless thinking. But we will have peace and we'll have stability and comfort if we fear the Lord and trust in Him alone. We need to regard God as God in our hearts. 
respond to your life and to your circumstances that way, in a way that shows that you really do regard the Lord as Almighty God and as your trustworthy and faithful Lord. Trust in Him. Thank Him. Praise Him. Whatever you're going through. Regard Him as He has revealed Himself to be a faithful and ever-present help in your times of trouble. And that's certainly how we need to think of Him in regard to our salvation. Your sin is a great enemy. But it's not greater than Jesus Christ and His saving grace. God's grace is far greater than all your sin. And He calls on you to trust in His Son for the forgiveness of all your sins and for Christ's gift of perfect righteousness that He gives to you. He takes your sin, gives you His sinless perfection. When you do that, when you trust in Him wholly like that, He will give you this salvation as a free gift, a salvation that is greater than you can even imagine in union with His Son. Everything that belongs to Jesus becomes yours. Of course, there are constant temptations that we face in this life to put our faith in other things, in created things. We're tempted to listen to other voices rather than to listen to the voice of God's Word. That's what the king of Judah was doing. But in Isaiah 8, verse 20, Isaiah said, in that phrase that uh, no doubt you've heard before, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, the problem here is that there are other words being listened to instead of God's word. You need to put aside those other words and listen to the word of the Lord. Look to the scriptures. That was the exhortation to Ahaz and to the people of Judah. Believe what God says in his word. Trust in him and what he has spoken and what he has revealed of himself and his goodness and his faithfulness. See, these people possessed God's word, but they didn't really believe it, and they weren't really living by it. That's a problem. That's a problem that we can fall into as well, possessing God's word and yet not having it possess us. So God said to them, if they will not speak, and this is in chapter 8, verse 20 and following, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. He goes on to say, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a picture of unbelief. 
living in the darkness of uh, not looking to God's word, the light of God's word. And apart from God's grace intervening in our lives, changing our hearts, opening our eyes, illuminating our minds to the truth, we would all be living like that. That is the way the unbeliever lives, living in utter spiritual darkness, blindness. And the picture there of the people of Judah is that they were living that way even though they had the word of God right under their noses. They had heard it. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had this wonderful prophet proclaiming the word right there in their presence. And yet they rejected it and lived in darkness. But then we begin to see the good news break through. The light comes. The light is dawning. And, and we see it in chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. God was just reaffirming his promise here. He is going to come and save his people from their suffering. His king is coming. All the geography mentioned there, the regions mentioned in verse 1, they're in the north, uh, north of Judah. They are uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, to think... Uh, of what the land was like later on. This is the land of the Samaritans. They would be uh, in the north. They would be the ones that would be the first to suffer when invaders would come into the land from the north. When they would be attacked. Uh, if Israel and uh, Syria, uh, rather if Assyria came against them, it was those northern regions that were going to be hit first. These people endured those things. They endured in those regions war and um, slavery and, and all that comes along with an invasion like that and the despair and trauma that they must have undergone. But spiritually, it was much worse. Spiritually speaking, their suffering was worse than the, the physical sufferings that they went through. They were living in spiritual darkness, living in their sin and misery. But in the future, these same people in Galilee and in those northern regions, they would be the first ones to enjoy the light of Christ. He even grew up there in their midst, and that's where he had most of his ministry take place. He is that great light that Isaiah wrote of here in verse 2. 
These people deserved God's judgment for turning away from them, but God was not content to just send his judgment upon them. He did send temporal judgments upon them, but he promised to send his Savior. And look at the beautiful language in verses 3 to 5, uh, all those beautiful images of redemption there. Release from slavery. Release from oppression. Increased joy. Harvest time. What a happy time harvest was. Gladness. Liberation. Liberation from enemies. And of course, this was not just earthly liberation, uh, physical liberation from um, earthly enemies, but Isaiah's looking uh, to the Savior's coming. He's talking about spiritual liberation. He's talking about Christ coming into the world to defeat all the forces of evil. Now look at the description of this great Savior and King in verse 6. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet it's a child who comes. This is how God defeats all evil. He sends a child. See the beauty of that? It's wonderful. It's hilarious, really, at the expense of God's enemies. He sends a child to do it. Of course, it's no ordinary child. This child is the God-man. God's power is so great, so far above all his enemies, that he says, I can come as a little child and just defeat them all. That's Jesus. It's like God with both hands tied behind his backs, back. God coming in the form of an infant, helpless, just the epitome of weakness. And yet all his almighty strength is embodied in that little one to do the work of redemption. And Isaiah emphasizes some things here in the way he, he uh, speaks of him. He reminds us that this one is coming to do a work on our behalf. He says, to us, to us, this child is born. To us, he is given. Luke stresses this too. He writes, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That is beautiful. It's so personal. He came to us. In other words, he came for us and for our benefit. He came because we needed him 
to do this work for us. This is a work that we could not possibly do for ourselves. No sinner could. Isaiah speaks of that work later in his prophecy. Of course, we think of Isaiah 53, where we read of the suffering work of the suffering servant of the Lord. And it's the same child, though, all grown up to do this work. He came to suffer and to die for us as our substitute and our sin bearer. To you and for you, he came. And you and I need him. We need Jesus so much. And that's the point here. Only Jesus Christ can do for you what you could never do for yourself. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you trust in him to meet that need? A second emphasis here we see in that word given. This child was given. God the Father gives this Savior to you and me and to everyone who will believe in him. That word given is very important. When something is given to you, all you can do is receive it with thanksgiving. And that is the nature of our salvation. God's grace, completely by his grace, we can't earn any part of this salvation. But God gave it as a free gift of his grace. It's something that we didn't deserve. We certainly couldn't earn it. We couldn't accomplish it for ourselves. We actually deserve the very opposite of this. But God gives us the gift of salvation through the person and work of his son. He's given to us. We come to him with nothing in our hands, nothing but our sin. And we receive Jesus Christ and all that he's done by faith alone. We receive this gift of God. God says, receive my son. Trust in him alone for the salvation that I have provided for you. I've given it to you. Receive it in faith. Isaiah also says in the clearest way that this child is a king. He came to be our king. He came to fulfill God's promise of a king who would reign forever. And his kingly work is described there so wonderfully in verses 6 and 7. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is the king, the ruler that the whole world has been waiting for. 
Just think of Israel and Judah and that long litany of lousy kings that they had in their history. So many bad kings, so many more bad kings than good. They had a few good kings, but even the best of their kings failed miserably to be what they needed to be, to provide the kind of rule and leadership that God's people need most. But here comes this little child who would not fail. He is the perfect king. He is the king of love and grace. The king who lays down his life for his people. And he came to rule over us. And he does that. He rules us who believe in him. He rules us inwardly in our hearts. He brings our rebellious hearts into submission to him. He changes us from the inside out. That's how he governs us right now as believers in Christ. He wins our hearts through his love for us, his great love. Of course, we see his love made known clearly in the gospel and what he's done for us. How he laid his life down for our salvation. And his reign is continuing to be expanded even now, all the time, day by day, throughout the world, more and more, gloriously, through the preaching of the gospel. It's a work of His Spirit through His Word as it goes forth. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace for all who enter it by faith in Him. One day, though, He's going to rule openly over all people. And that day is coming. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ has that power and authority even now, even though it's not exercised openly over all just yet. But it will be. He will return in power and glory. And the whole world is going to bow to King Jesus. I hope that's good news to your ears. That's something we should long for. They longed for his coming in the Old Testament. We should long for his coming even more now that we know what a good and loving king and master he is. I hope you long for it because there's no stopping it. Why would we want to stop it? He is so good. He is the one good ruler that everyone has been longing for. Every complaint we have about our leaders and our governments, uh, he's the one we want. He's the one who does all things well. I can't wait for him to come. That's our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a story about C.S. Lewis at Christmas time. One year he had an atheist colleague of his to his home to visit. And as they were visiting, uh, 
Lewis's window was cracked open, and there were carolers coming down the street, singing outside his window. And they were singing about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And after hearing this singing, Lewis's colleague, his unbelieving colleague, said, isn't it good that we know now that virgins don't have children? And Lewis responded by saying, my friend, don't you think that they knew that virgins don't have children? Of course they knew. Everyone knows that virgins don't have children. But that's the wonder of God and the way he brought our Savior into the world through this supernatural birth, this miraculous conception and birth. It was a miraculous sign of who this glorious person was and what he came to do for us. A wondrous work, an impossible work to man. Jesus came as Almighty God in the flesh. He came in this seemingly impossible way to do what was truly impossible for us. He came to save us from what our sins deserve. Everything about him is amazing and perfect and wondrous. His love, his grace that saves us, his power and his dominion over us. People, let's stand in awe of this great, wonderful king that God has provided for us. He's not only our king, our Lord, and our master. He's the lover of our souls. He's the friend of sinners. We need him so much. And God has provided him for us. Let's worship him and trust in him as our Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so great and greatly to be praised for your wondrous plan of redemption that you ordained from before the foundation of the world. We are in awe of you and your wisdom and your ways and your wonderful works. And we stand in awe of your wonderful son above all and all that he's done for us. We need the Savior. We need him so much. We pray that you teach each and every one of us our great need for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the redemption he's provided through his blood. Teach us the full sufficiency of his, his life and of his sacrificial death for us and even of his ministry now as our resurrected and exalted uh, Lord and mediator. We thank you for his being our advocate and our intercessor at the right hand of God even now. 
Teach us, Lord, to trust in him and rely upon him completely. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.